Last time we began chapter 9 and we covered the first three verses. And after we covered those verses, we went to look at how they were used in the New Testament, specifically Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel. And uh, while we skimmed over the rest of it for context, we will spend a bit more time on that now. So I shall read through the first seven verses again of chapter 9, which kind of ends this whole section, really, that we've been doing um, to a point. And then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll go through it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he is made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study these words tonight, Lord, that you would guide us, you would bless us, and Lord, that uh, our time would be profitable. May we see your son clearly. May we rejoice in his name. And Lord, may we follow him day by day. Amen. Okay. So last time we looked specifically at um, the issue of these regions that were in darkness, Naphtali and Zebulun. Uh, the tribes that were given this land. Um, It's interesting to know, I don't think I made this very clear last time, so it's good to come back and say this, but there are actually other tribal lands that incorporate the area that was known as Galilee. These aren't the only ones. Naphtali is mentioned specifically because Capernaum was in Naphtali, and Zebulun is mentioned specifically because Nazareth was in Zebulun. The way of the sea, as I said, was that path traveling up, but specifically it was the western coast of Galilee where so much of Jesus' ministry happened. And beyond the Jordan refers to uh, the land of Perea. And these are the regions where Jesus ministered in his earthly ministry. And so these upper regions that were held in contempt, as it were, They were held in contempt on a religious setting because of their compromise. They were held in contempt by enemy armies as anyone attacking Jerusalem came down through them first. And so it was a place of great darkness. And it was uh, prophesied by Isaiah here that it was going to become a place of great light as was fulfilled by the arrival of Christ. Now, for us to do this passage, so much of it is so well known to us. I think we really need to just take a step back first and just look at it as a whole. 
I remember um, being at school, and my school was a fairly traditional school, and it was, a, it was nominally a Christian school. It wasn't like an active Christian school like you would think of one, but it, it, it was faith-based in a traditional sense at least. And so we would have prayers and hymns every morning at school assembly, and we would have uh, church services at school on Sunday. I was at a boarding school, so I was there at weekends, and we would have church services. And so I grew up with a lot of traditional Anglican sort of liturgy and what have you. And I knew this, this passage, and I know it well, because every Christmas it was read. And I remember being a young child. I remember, you know, many years of having this even before I was saved and going through this. And obviously, we get that when it talks of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, at least with the prince of peace bit, we're pretty sure, even as a young child, that we were talking about Jesus. It didn't take a degree in rocket science to work that out. It was Christmas time, and the passage was only ever read at Christmas time. So I'm guessing that's about Jesus, right? But the thing that always confused me was it saying that the government shall be upon his shoulder, saying that the increase of his government will not end. And I'm like, I kind of knew as a young kid what government was vaguely, and we had a prime minister and what have you, so I kind of understood that, but it didn't seem to me that Jesus was doing much government kind of work right now. He wasn't, uh, hadn't been elected in recently, shall we say. He you know, even in very basic terms, in, in a growing up in a tradition, and I understood enough to know that Jesus had died, that he had been resurrected, and that he had ascended. I said it every Sunday with the Apostles' Creed that we had to recite. So I knew those things. But, but he wasn't here with a government. He wasn't here ruling. And I want us to understand this because I think that when we come to passages like this, and we will see a ton of them in Isaiah, that we are looking at things in the sense of, oh, is this talking about the first coming of Jesus, or is this talking about the second coming of Jesus? And so often with the Old Testament prophets, the answer is neither, or both, or wrong question. <laughs> the concept is simply, here's Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's the Son. He's the one who will rule. He's the eternal one. He's the mighty counselor, uh, the wonderful counselor. All of these things. This is Jesus. And so it's presenting the Messiah. It's presenting Jesus without the sort of the incessant desire that we have to have everything categorized and put into chronological sequence for us. It's just saying, behold, your Messiah. Here he is. And so I think that when we understand that, we see that the prophecy begins with the reference to the, the people of darkness and the people in these regions and how these people who have walked in darkness are going to see a great light. The light is going to shine upon them. And we know that that was quoted in Matthew 4. We spoke about that last time. We know that when Jesus in John 7 and 8, is to, they're talking about that, that Jesus then says, I am the light of the world. We know that this is referring to Jesus, that he is the light that has come to these people, right? And yet at the same time, are those people living in light now as defined by this passage? Is he governing over them? Is he ruling over them? No, he's not. And so was this prophecy fulfilled when Jesus was ministering there? And the answer is yes and no. The prophecy, and, 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 and maybe even you're asking the wrong question. 
It's, and I don't believe in double fulfillment or anything like that. The, the prophecy is just simply saying, this region of darkness is going to have light upon it because the Messiah is coming. And the Messiah specifically came to this specific area at the time of his first coming. So this is not solely a second coming prophecy. But then when we look at verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice with, before you as with joy at the harvest. They're glad when they devoid the spoil. We're now getting into second coming. That did not happen at the time of Christ. By the way, if you're familiar with some basic eschatology, you may well be familiar with the, the concept that at the time of the tribulation, which I don't believe we, the church, will be here for, and I think is specifically a time of trial and discipline and training and, and judgment for Israel, it is what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, that during that period of time, the Jewish population will be whittled down to a third of what it was. Now, bear in mind that one-third of all living Jews died during the Holocaust. At the end of the day of the Lord, two-thirds of all living Jews will be killed. So when it says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, we're talking about the establishing of the kingdom after the day of the Lord, after the day of trouble. This is Isaiah's constantly talking about the judgment to come. He talks about immediate, we saw this in the first five chapters. He talks of immediate judgment. He talks of longer term judgment on that day, on that day, on that day. We saw that in the first few chapters. And then he talks about restoration. He talks of redemption. He talks of the kingdom being established on earth. So it is after darkness that the kingdom comes. And that this passage can't ultimately be fulfilled in all of its fullness until the second coming. Until the population is increased during the time of the kingdom. The people are rejoicing that Christ is ruling and has government upon the earth. Until that time comes, this can't fully be fulfilled. And yet, clearly it began when Jesus was ministering in those specific areas. How does that work out? Quite simply this, that those people to whom he ministered on earth, in those regions, who believed in him, they will be there for the kingdom because they believed in him. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So that's kind of how this whole thing, I think it's important to say that as we come in because there are so many second coming elements mingled in with first coming elements as we go through this. Um, so verse 4 is really where we're picking up properly tonight. Notice in verse 4, the 4. In verse 5, 4. And in verse 6, 4. As I said last time, just to confuse you, there's three 4s. Okay? What he's saying is, these people who are in darkness, they now have light. The people have light, and they're rejoicing, and they have joy. Why? Why is this light come? Why are these people rejoicing? What is the reason for darkness turning to light? What is the reason for mourning turning to rejoicing? What is the reason for that? And we are given three specific reasons. And I think as we go through this now, what I've been saying about these, this first coming, second coming, being muddled and mingled together in this prophecy, and so many in the Old Testament, really becomes clear. So let's go through them one at a time. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. So, 
there was at that time, as we know, there was the Gentile nations coming in, Galilee of the Gentiles, the Gentile nations coming in, and there was a rule over them. They had these various nations that would try to conquer Jerusalem, and they would always be first on the list, as it were. As the nations came down from the north, they'd be the first ones to be checked off. And they were constantly under the oppression and rule of others. And in an ultimate sense, that, that yoke, that burden, has not eased fully, and it will not until there is Jesus upon the throne. Notice the, um, the references here are all to the breaking away of um, uh, leadership and oppressing oppressors. And God is the one who is going to break it. You have broken. And notice how God's going to break it. You have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, I, I am going to try and cover verse 7 tonight. I'm going to try and get this done. But I really ummed and ahed over just stopping here and just spending the whole week on this. Um, but let's, So let's try and do it quickly. But I do want to turn to Judges chapter 7. Let's turn to Judges 7. This is the most wonderful passage. I'm not going to spend... Well, I could change my mind even now, but no, I'm not going to spend the whole week on this, but I highly encourage you to go away and read it again in your own time, to just meditate upon it, just to chew it over in your mind, just to think about the implications, because it is such a powerful passage. In chapter 7 of Judges, we read this, then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, so he's going to be called Gideon from now on, uh, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And Yahweh said to Gideon, remember, whenever you read that in your Old Testaments, what's happening? People are literally audibly hearing the voice of Yahweh. Gideon is a prophet. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Just hold it right there. In this era of megachurches, big money, marketing, and everything else, the church of Christ has to understand this. He literally says, there are people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. This is nothing to do with numbers in the search of church size and church attendance. This is to do with power and might in battle. You have too much power. Today that might be too much, too much gifting, too much money, too much influence. Everything's in your favor. Too, way too much favor. Let's get rid of all that favor. Too many blessings. Let's get rid of some of those blessings. That's essentially what's being said here. Why? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. How many times have we done this? How many times have we done this? I've heard this said so many times when people will say things like, oh, I really hope that that person has been interested. I've been sharing the gospel with them. I really hope they come to church because they're so gifted in this way. And it'd be really great to have them at church because we really need someone gifted in this way. You know, they're kind of like they're, they're assessing their worth as a Christian to the Christian community on the basis of what they're seeing before they're even saved. Well, that's just nonsensical. When do you receive your spiritual gifts? When you're saved. I'm not saying that God doesn't use our natural gifts. 
I'm not saying that things we're fond of in childhood aren't things that in adulthood that God will use for his glory. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that there are people who do things and they do things out of their own ability and their own gifts. And of course, God has given those things and they say, haven't I done well? And they might not say it out loud. They might not even say it inwardly. But it always hides away under the surface. And I don't get sometimes why God doesn't help us help him a bit better. <laughs> you know? It's like, if I was God, I just wouldn't do it this way, God. I mean, I'm sure you're sovereign and you're good and, you know, and I trust you and all, but I just wouldn't do it this way. Wouldn't it be easier if I was able to do this a bit better and I had a bit more of that and a bit less of these problems? If I had those things, man, I'd serve you so much better. Paul says that he asked God to take away that thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan, an angel of Satan, a literal demon? I don't know, maybe. But he asked God to take it away three times, and God says, nope, nope, and nope. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. And God's strength is seen in Paul's weakness. And that is illustrated here as well as anywhere else in Scripture. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Gilead. So are you scared? You're about to go into battle. The armies are gathered before you. Are you scared? You don't have to be here if you don't want to be here. Go on, shoot, off you go. Routinely in churches, as I pastored over several decades, I have seen people leave who I haven't wanted to leave, but retrospectively I've been glad that they've left. Why? They weren't up for the battle. They wanted to compromise. And that's why it's so important as a pastor not to compromise the preaching, not to water things down, because if you are going to offend people and they're not going to like it and they're going to go, that's a good thing. We don't want that. And that's exactly what's happening here. He's saying, look, if, if you're scared, if this is a problem to you, just go. 32,000 people were gathered to fight for the Lord. 22,000 left. Now, you've got to understand, they're outnumbered already before they even start. And they've gone from 32,000 down to 10,000, just like that. So Yahweh says to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Who's the boss? Yahweh's the boss. So he brought the people down to the water, and Yahweh said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the, uh, the water with his tongue like a dog, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those people who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Gideonites into your hands. Let the others go, every man to his home. And so God is basically saying... Here as you stand before this army and you've already had uh, 22,000 people leave, you've got 10,000 left, and now you're whittled down to 300. We've gone from being weaker to it being ridiculous to it being just farcical. Just being farcical. Just being utterly ridiculous. And 
That same night, the Lord said to him, verse 9, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So he goes down, he goes with his servant, and they go to the, to there, and the Midianites and the Amakites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number. You kind of want, with this passage, you want to skim ahead and say, how many were there? Let me go and have a look. And the answer is, too many, can't count them. <laughs> can't even count their camels, let alone them. And so there they are. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. So imagine them kind of hiding in the bushes, listening in and spying on them, okay? And there they are. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so it fell and turned it upside down, and the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Gideon might not have believed that he was going to win the battle, but the enemy already did. God had already given them over to them. So Gideon hears this, and then he is able to tell the people with confidence in verse 15, Arise, for Yahweh has given the host of Midian into your hand. He divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars, and... He said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets on each, uh, also on every side for all the camp and shout for Yahweh and for Gideon. And so they do so. And uh, we won't have time to read through. I need to get to verse 7. But having said I wouldn't spend too much time, there we are. But you get the gist. They hear the noise, they see the lights, and they're like, oh my goodness, all of these people. And they flee. And 300 men defeat the Midianite army. It is laughable. It is farcical. It is comical. And it's amazing. And it puts our lives into perspective. I don't want to make it too personal, but just so you understand, you know, when we were going through the stresses and crises of church coups in England about six or seven years ago, my brain sort of had a meltdown. It kind of stopped working. I found myself one day in a, looking into a fridge and not knowing where I was or how I got there. I just had a complete, my brain just frazzled. It's never been the same since. I used to sit and just, I could read through commentaries seven, eight hours a day, no problem at all. I loved it. Now I... I struggle. I struggle to read a page at a time sometimes. I don't know how I do the job I do. I have no idea. None at all. I feel like God has whittled me down below the 300 he gave to Gideon. And I, I didn't, I'm not as good as Paul. I didn't stop at three. I think I'm about 3,333 right now. But I say, God, can't you just give me my brain back? Can't you just let me study harder? Can't you just let me read more, get more done? Can't I just do this? I could do this job so much better if you just healed me, if you just helped me, if you just made things better. And week after week, on the worst of weeks, I sob and I come up to preach and I'm like, Lord, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this. And as I'm preaching, I'm like, wow, this is good. And I get down and I'm like, 
I don't know how that happened. I would never choose to do it this way. Never, 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 never. Not in a million years. I wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But God said, that's for you right now. And just for the record, I'm not stopping at 3,333. I'll just keep going till the end. I'll just keep saying, God, please take this away. Please take this away. Please take this away. But so long as the no's keep coming back, then we just got to be faithful with what we have. What else do we do? But I tell you every week when people say that they're blessed and when people's lives are impacted, I am in zero doubt who has done the blessing, whose hand has done the work, whose strength has accomplished what has been accomplished. None at all. And that's the story of Midian. So back to Isaiah. The breaking of the burden is going to be as on the day of Midian. What is that telling us? That is telling us that the way in which the oppressor is going to be destroyed, bringing in the time of light, is going to be miraculous to the nth degree. It is not going to be simply one army against another and one coming out on top, but rather it will be utterly miraculous. And I was, as I said, it was an option to spend more time on this, but I opted out. But, you know, you could go and research this maybe, but when, uh, when we look at passages concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the day of, uh, the, day of the Lord, we see the, um, we see the Israelites being holed up and seeking protection. We see the armies of the Antichrist ready to wipe out the Jews. Why wipe out the Jews? Because Psalm 118, as, we read, as was read to us this morning, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus quotes that to them. It was a messianic psalm. Always understood as messianic. The Messiah coming. And Jesus said, you won't see me again, Israel, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No Israel, no coming Messiah. And as the Antichrist is about to wipe them out, and as they're defenseless, and they've been found, what do they do? Do they pick up their swords and become strong? Do they conquer the armies of the Antichrist by military might? No, they repent. They repent. They mourn for the one they have pierced. They repent of their predecessor's rejection of Christ. They repent, more importantly, of their rejection of Christ. They acknowledge that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and they cry out to him. And when they cry out to him, he comes back. And those armies, and we will read about this in Isaiah later on, Isaiah takes these things and he develops these themes. And towards the end of the book, we'll read about the armies being destroyed by the breath of his mouth. Just like in Midian, God miraculously, supernaturally defeats the greater military might because the battle is the Lord's. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel in the fire. The weapons of the, the conquered army will be destroyed and used as fuel. In Isaiah 2, we already saw the end of warfare. I read this to you last time. People will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I tell you what, you don't have to be a, um, a, a, study, a student of current affairs to know that war has not yet ended on this planet, nor is it inclined to do so in the immediate future. And so this, is not, this has not fully come to fruition. Um, but 
it was prophesied earlier, and now the detail is being filled out. So at the, the time that the light fully comes on this nation will be the removal of the yoke of the burden, the, the oppressors. It will be the end of war and the, destroy, the destruction of um, the garments and the, the weapons of war. And thirdly, in verse 6, the third reason for the light, for unto us, or I always say that just because I know it from that version from childhood, for to us a child is born the coming of the Messiah. Now, we need to understand this in context. This is very, very important, okay? Look how it all fits together, okay? The light is coming because the war has ended and the oppressor has been conquered. Who's going to conquer them? How are they going to be conquered? This one is going to conquer them. This son who is going to rise up, well, the government will be on his shoulders, he's going to be the mighty one, and he will conquer. So these three things are separate things, and yet they all come together as a passage. Can you see now how the first coming fits in? Jesus comes to those regions, and he is the one that's going to bring the end of war. He is the one that's going to bring the end of oppression, and therefore he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And while he is there, he says to them, I'm the light. I'm the light. I'm the one that's going to do this. Did he bring that light to them in a practical sense of the end of war? No. Why? Because they rejected him. But one day they will accept him and he will bring that light to the land. But it is him who is the one who is being referenced here. The other thing to notice by way of context, context, going back a bit further, is this whole section that we've been dealing with since the start of chapter 7. Once we had the calling of Isaiah in chapter 6, the whole of this section since the beginning of chapter 7 has been to do with Ahaz at this time, the king of Judah. He was trying to... Uh, he was being encouraged to have a, uh, a peace treaty with Israel and with Syria, and he refused to do that because he was trying to make buddies with the superpower of Assyria. And so Israel and Syria wanted to remove him, if you recall, and they wanted to get rid of him, get rid of his offspring, and install an completely new dynasty into rule in Judah that would do what they wanted. And God said that isn't going to happen. Why? Because of his covenant with David. The house of David had to continue. Why? Because the covenant of David promised certain things. Now, we're going to turn now. We've done this already with this section, but let's do it again. We're going to turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. 7 or 10? I think it's 10. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles anyway. No, I have written the reference down completely wrongly. Hold on a second. 1 Chronicles. <laughs> That'll be why I'm doing the... 1 Chronicles 10. 10. 1 Chronicles 10. Sorry, my bad. 1 Chronicles 10. Except it's not 10, it's verse 10. So I haven't even written the chapter down. That's how bad my, I am in my mind. Hold on one second. Let's see if we can find it between us. Shout loudly if you've got it. It's the Davidic covenant. It's not that far on. 
Never mind. Let me just let me just go through. Teach me not to write the chapter down. Um, let me just read through the uh, the things that were promised. It's a real shame. If you do find it, shout it out, and we'll go there. But I thought it was chapter seven, but maybe it's not. It's certainly not. That's just genealogy. Um, maybe it is Second Chronicles, and maybe I wrote it down wrong. No, it can't be. Anyways, let's leave it. Um, the things promised by the Davidic covenant in, in Chronicles somewhere um, was an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal son. These are the things that were promised. An eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, and an eternal son. And what is interesting in the parallel passage in uh, the Samuels the, the son being referenced is a son who sins. And that is a reference to his immediate son, Solomon. But in the Chronicles passage, the son is an eternal son. So the house, that is the dynasty, the family of David, is going to be eternal. The kingdom is going to be eternal. The throne is going to be eternal. Um, and the son is going to be eternal. In other words, from the house of David, we have one son who will be on the throne and therefore, because he is eternal, his rule will be eternal, the kingdom he rules over will be eternal and so that house that he comes from, that family will be eternal because he will be eternal. So those four things will all be eternal. Okay, That's the backing to, um, to chapter 7 of Isaiah. That's the background to Isaiah 7. 17. That's where the seven's coming from. Thank you for that. Let me read it. You have to turn there now because we're running late, but let me, just, uh, let me just read it real quick. Thank you. First Chronicles 17, and I'm reading from uh, halfway through verse 10. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that Yahweh will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. Son, house, kingdom, throne. All there. That's the promise of the Davidic covenant. So in chapter 7, Ahaz, man, Ahaz should have been wiped out. He was a horrible guy. But he can't be removed. The dynasty can't be removed. Why? Because of the promises to the house of David. That's the whole background. Okay? So I want you to follow this thread, okay? After all this mumbling and distractions, let's try and get our heads clear, okay? Intertextuality is not always one passage referring back to one other passage. Often it is a thread that goes through, dot by dot, through the Bible. And we have to link all these things up together, okay? In Genesis chapter 3, the Messiah was going to be seed of the woman. Seed of the woman. The one who would bring victory was the son of the woman. Now, as we go through Genesis, we see that, that that promised Messiah is going to come through the promised nation of Israel, descended of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And then when we come to First Chronicles, we see that specifically within 
the house of the nation of Israel, having already in Genesis said that he would come from the tribe of Judah, we see specifically that he comes from the house, the family of David. And then we see in this prophecy that there is a son, notice how that word was used in 1 Chronicles, there is a son who will, who will have this eternal throne, this eternal kingdom, and make the house eternal. So in chapter 7, when it says, as a sign just look in chapter 7 of Isaiah now. The, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, chapter 7, verse 10. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask being singular. Ahaz has to ask for a sign. Ahaz rejects the sign, as we saw. And therefore, he then says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David. Then, meaning because of this rejection, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? The yous here are now plural. The pronouns have gone from singular Ahaz to plural house of David. Therefore the Lord himself will give you, plural, house of David, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And all of these threads are now coming together. The, this is all coming together. There is, there is a virgin, and we spoke about it at the time, so I need to justify it now. But there is a virgin who will give birth, a miracle. That explains Genesis 3, chapter 16, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is now explained. Why not the seed of a man, which is how every other person in Jewish history is reckoned? Why is he reckoned after the woman? Because there is only a human mother and no human father. A virgin is going to conceive. That now helps draw the, uh, conclude that part of the thread, that problem. And there is this son that comes from this virgin, and he will be Emmanuel, God with us. Okay? Now, this son is being referenced again. When we have a son in chapter 7, and we have the same section of Isaiah, and he talks here about a child being born, that's obviously the child of chapter 7. When he says a son is given, that's the son of, oh, sorry, that's Genesis, Isaiah chapter 7. That's the son of Isaiah chapter 7. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And he will be the one who rules. Now, again, I, when you see these passages, just as an aside, have a bit of grace to the Jews who didn't understand the first coming of Jesus. This is what they grew up on. The Messiah was the one who was going to have the government on his shoulders. The Messiah was the one who was going to establish a kingdom that would be forever. The Messiah was the one who would establish the, the reign of God. The Messiah was the one who would bring about the end of war, the end of oppression. And so when Jesus comes along and he dies on a cross, they're like, well, that can't be the guy. The solution to that, of course, will be in Isaiah as well, but at least have a bit of compassion for them. It's not like they, they, someone asked them what one plus one is and they said 11. I mean, it, they, their conclusions were difficult with the, the, the scriptures before them. The answers are there, but you can see with this kind of passage why they were looking at that. So this child is going to be given, the son is going to be given, and he is going to grow up to be the one on whom the government will be on his shoulder. Which government? The government of Israel. At what time? At the time of the kingdom. In the context of Isaiah, that is abundantly clear. Now look at this. And his name shall be. 
Now, as we come to this, I want you to understand something very clearly. Tuesday nights, those of you who've been coming will have heard me say this many times, uh, last Tuesday being just one example. But the older I get in my faith, the more I study the scripture, the more I realize how little revelation there is in the New Testament. I was under the impression when I was a young Christian that everything in the New Testament that God was just saying, here, write this down, write this down. And they're like, wow, this is great stuff. Never knew this. This is wonderful, you know? But the reality is that the vast majority of the New Testament is simply in the Old Testament. Things are being put into sequence. There's a little bit of additional revelation to clarify things. Threads are being followed through. Things are being tied together. But so much of it. Going through the first five chapters of Isaiah was mind-blowing to me because I'm looking, there's Romans, there's Romans, there's Romans, there's Romans. The way that Paul's thinking, the way he talks about condemnation in the first few chapters of Romans comes straight out of Isaiah. And I want us to understand this. The concept that the Jewish Messiah would be both God and man is not a Christian concept. It is a Jewish concept. Always was. A virgin will give birth to a son and his name will be what? God with us. The child will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. Now if that wasn't clear, which indeed to be fair it's not 100% clear, this passage is. The name, and remember what names mean. Names have a meaning. Yes? Isaiah's kids, Shi'er Yashub, and the other one that I have to look up to be able to remember it, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. They all mean things. They have significance. When God gives a name, it has significance. And Emmanuel has significance, and these names have significance. So when it says these are his names, it's not saying, you know, his name is Bob, but we also call him Dave. And on Wednesday, we call him Jim. And then when, it, when he makes that little wisecrack about popcorn, then we call him Corny. We've we got loads of names for this guy. I think when, when Tim was here, he ended up with about 20 different names for our dog. Our dog's called Buddy, but he is called everything. I mean, you know... He, he's um, dog, Dogosaurus, Dogosaurus Rex, Fluff Bucket. I mean, he's got more names than you could imagine. Hundreds of names. That's not what he's saying here. That's not, this is not him having lots of different names he's called. This is referring to who he is. This is referring to his character. The name of God is who God is. It's his characteristics. So this name here is who this Messiah, this son, the one whom the government will be upon his shoulder. This is who he is. And look at these things that are said about him. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. All four of those things refer to God. If it's not clear to you now, it will be in two minutes. But they all refer to God. Prince of Peace could theoretically refer to a man as well, but in the context of Isaiah, refers to God. The other three can only refer to God. Let's break them down. Let's go through them. Firstly, Wonderful Counselor. Well, if you needed some help and you go and talk to someone, they give you good advice, you'd say, they're a wonderful counselor. That's really helpful. That's not blasphemy. You can say that. That's okay. So why is this then considered to be something that is a divine name? Well, firstly, in the book of Isaiah, the one who is wonderful to counsel is only used in reference to God. Isaiah 25 and verse 1 and Isaiah 28 verse 29 
are references where you talk about wonderful counsel or wonderful counsel, and it only refers to God. But more importantly, the word wonderful only refers to God. In Hebrew, there are different words, for example, for creation. The word um, bara uh, means to create, but it is a word that only speaks of God's creation. If you're talking about a man creating something, you have to use a different word. I think most translations delineate this in English by using the word create and the word make. But there's one word that is a verb that only God does. And there's another word that's similar, but what man does. In the same way, you can talk about somebody in Hebrew being wonderful, but this is not the word you use. This is a word that only, only in Scripture refers to God. It's the word Pele, by the way, who was a wonderful footballer, but not quite God. And so God is Pele, he's wonderful, uh, Jesus rather, Messiah, is Pele, wonderful counsellor. In other words, he is going to counsel, he's going to give advice, he's going to be the one ruling and saying this must be done and that must be done, and he will be wonderful, he will do it in a way that only God himself can do it. Secondly, he is mighty God. Now you can't run away from this one, can you? Mighty God, El Gibor, El, God, Gibor, Mighty, Mighty God, God Almighty. I think Almighty is weird, isn't it? It's like an old English religious word. My first familiarity with God Almighty was as a swear word. You know, oh, God Almighty, as my dad used to say. So kind of it's lost, it's, it loses its meaning. When words become too familiar in Christian settings, we, we lose sight of their meaning. Mighty, almighty, mighty over all. This is the might and the power of God. El Gibor, God mighty. Very simple. How could you possibly get that wrong? How could you possibly mistranslate it? Well, here's an example. <laughs> there are, of course, those who are theologically liberal. I don't like calling them liberal Christians because they're not really Christians at all those who reject the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that you can reject the deity of Jesus Christ and be saved. Simple as that. Paul says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, that he's God. Quoting from Isaiah, fondly enough, we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 45. But anyway, the reality is, is that you can't reject the deity of Christ and be a true believer. So what do these liberal theologians do when they have clearly the Jewish Messiah being referred to as mighty God? Well, we know what they do because the New English Bible, not the New English translation, NET, but New English Bible, NEB, which uh, many of which, by the way, we had at school when I was a kid, it was actually recommended to us. I think I still have one because it was the recommended version for us as kids to have at school and we had to have, to have one at school. Um, it was a translation that was authorized by the World Council of Churches, which has long been a uh, God-rejecting, gospel-rejecting group of churches. And how do you think that they translated mighty God? They say this, in battle, he will be godlike. In other words, the text simply says, his name is mighty God. And they're like, that can't be right, because he's not going to be God. Obviously, Jesus isn't God. That can't be right. So I guess it must just mean that when he goes into battle, he's so mighty that he's mighty in a way like God is mighty. That's called uh, preconceived ideas compromising your interpretation of the text. He is mighty God. Now, the next one, again, needs a little bit of clarification. Uh, 
eternal Father, quite literally, the Father of eternity. If, if someone is the Father of something, he's the one who creates that thing. And I think that the contextually here, the eternity that Jesus is the Father of. Because bear in mind, to say, I think when we say eternal Father, we're thinking of God the Father, right? But this is not. This is the Messiah. This is the Son. Unto us a Son is given. Child is given, right? So what is it saying? Well, he is the Father. The Son is the Father. I know that sounds strange, but the, he is the Father. He is the source of eternity. In the context, I think that means eternal life. Eternal life comes from the Son. A very common New Testament concept. So though he is the Son in the relationship of the Trinity, he is the Father of eternity. He is the one who is the source of eternal life. He is the one who grants to us the inheritance of eternal life as a father gives his inheritance to his children. It comes from the Son. And so those who have eternity have eternity through the Messiah. And thirdly, there is the Prince of Peace. Now, Prince of Peace obviously can refer to uh, a man, theoretically speaking. But every time that we have such a concept in Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 3, chapter 26, verse 12, the peace in Isaiah throughout the book is solely, solely a work of God. You see so much warfare in Isaiah. And you see so much peace ending that warfare. And every single time, it is God who brings about that peace. So the one who brings peace, the prince of peace, the ruler who brings about peace, that has to be God. Now look at how this combines. There is, in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. That woman, in Isaiah 7, is going to be a virgin, explaining why um, it is the seed of the woman, and she's going to bear a son. That son will be God with us. So God's going to be with us through that Messiah, right? Oh, more than that. The son who will be born will obviously be born of a woman and therefore will be human. And yet, he will be wonderful. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. He will be God. That is as, do you know what? If I wanted to talk to an unbeliever who said to me, how can you believe that Jesus is both God and man? This is as good a passage as any in the Bible. You're trying to deal with the cults who reject the deity of Christ. This is as good a passage as any in the Bible. And here it is in Isaiah, written thousands of years before he came. And yet some people will try and say, that the deity of Jesus Christ is a, is a later Christian concept that was introduced centuries after the time of Christ? What a load of rubbish! We're reading here from a book that was written centuries before the time of Christ. And it's clearly saying that when the Messiah comes, he will be a human son who will be born, and yet at the same time he will be God. Therefore, he'll be called Emmanuel, because through him God will be with us. He will be human and God. How could it be clearer? Old Testament. Nothing new about this concept, this doctrine. Does, is there further revelation concerning this doctrine of the New Testament? Absolutely. Additional information is given in the New Testament. But the basic concept is not something that is a New Testament concept. It's something that has been in the Bible for centuries and centuries before that. So... 
Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. I see the increase of government paralleling verse 3. We have a sort of inclusio here to a degree. Um, if I looked a bit closer, it might even be chiastic the whole way through. But, but we have an increase of joy and a multiplication of the nation in verse 3. So the nation is being multiplied and the joy is increasing. When, when God establishes the kingdom... That's not the end of the story, right? The population increases. You say, how does the population increase if people are coming back in glorified bodies and there's no, you know, and there's no more marriage and what have you? Well, the answer is, is that there are plenty of people, one third of all Jews, who, and, and some Gentiles as well, who survive the tribulation, who survive the day of the Lord. And they will continue to have children and the population will increase and the joy will increase and peace will increase. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will continue to be this increase and peace will never, the increase of peace and of government will never come to an end. He will establish his throne over all of this. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it. He will set it up and he will maintain it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So from what time forth? From the time that it's established. And he will continue to uphold it and the kingdom will continue and the kingdom will never come to an end. There will be no war, there will be peace because the God-man, the Jewish Messiah will be reigning from earth. I hope, I know that some of you haven't been here for all of it, but if, if you're following through Isaiah here, I hope you can see how the revelation is, um, is, is like a, it's starting on a narrow thread and it's getting thicker and broader as it comes out. He's starting with limited information, little bits, a thread here. Chapter 2, we're going to see a kingdom. Chapter 2, we're going to see the end of war. And then these things are developed and they all come together. And all of these different threads have their own line that travels through Isaiah and comes up here and here and here and here. But all of them get united and tangled up and brought together in this one. In Isaiah uh, 7 through uh, 12, the book of Emmanuel, he is the child. He is the child, Emmanuel, God with us. Later in the book, he will be referred to as the righteous one, the suffering servant. But he is the one that all of these threads get fulfilled in. He is the one that accomplishes all things. And this, you know, and I, I think sometimes as Christians who only know our New Testaments, and not even that that well sometimes, you know, we, we sometimes say, oh yeah, we're, we understand there's, there's supposed to be a Jewish Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah. I know for the bulk of my Christian life, when I was a youngster, I just, you know, I, I, there's a, supposed to be, prophesied a Messiah, there's supposed to be a Jewish Messiah. But you never see it. You just presume it. And to me, it's fascinating going through Isaiah and seeing these concepts just being developed. And you can see, as we just read this passage, I can see clearly how this expectation of a Jewish Messiah had risen had come about. They'd been told these things would happen. You can see how the disciples thought that he was the son of God who was going to end Roman rule and bring about a kingdom and bring about peace. You can see the reason for the confusion when he had to go to the cross. I mean, if you've only got Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, you can fully understand that. But when we get to 53, it's going to look a little bit different. And so, 
We press on through Isaiah and we see how all of this comes about. When we come to uh, verse 8, next time we begin the first section that deals, deals with Meashala uh, Hashbaz. And he is the later son, the younger son of Isaiah. And it's uh, hasten the prey and uh, hasten the spoilers, speed the prey knows. Hasten the prey and speed the soil. Uh, the, speed the spoil. And he, it is all about the destruction that will come from Assyria. And that's what we're going to see, the fulfillment of his name. That's what we spoke about before, wasn't it? Uh, chapter 8 and verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh have given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And so next time, verse 8 and following, we dig into the section through to chapter 10 and verse 4 that deals with the Assyrian invasion and attack and it's the fulfillment of Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And then when we get to chapter 10 verse 5, we deal more specifically with the remnant, which is Shia Yashub, the remnant will return. And that goes through to the end of chapter 10. And then in chapter 11 through to chapter 12, we have Isaiah section, the Lord is salvation. And indeed he is as he comes through that section. And we will see more development of these threads. We will see more about this son, this child, this Messiah, and we'll be given more details about him, which will continue to build on what we already have. But I want to end today just by considering this. And look at, the, look at this, how the, the, the four section in verse, far, uh, verse, in verse four, actually, um, begins with a reference to the day of Midian. Why will there be light? Why will there be rejoicing? Because of the burden being broken as on the day of Midian. And then what do we see at the end of this section, verse 7? The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. What happened in Midian? Did Gideon do something amazing? No. Gideon had his army whittled down to 300, simply so that God would get all the glory. When Christ returns, when he sets up his kingdom, when he comes in glory, God will receive all the glory. That is what it means when the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. And so I encourage you, I end where we started. I encourage you, friends, trust Yahweh, trust God, trust Christ. He is man and God. Christ himself is the sovereign ruler of the universe, the upholder of all creation. And he can accomplish all things. And if he takes from us, and if he removes our strengths, our gifts, our opportunities, our health, and whatever else, may he receive glory through the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture. And Father, I pray that you would, uh, you would enable us to as we see your son prophesied here, just to become ever more familiar with who he is, with his name, with his names, with his character, with his attributes. And may we rejoice in him. And may we trust in him. If he is the father of eternity, if he is mighty God, then we're safe in his hands. And may we walk in the light of that faith, we pray. Amen.